The sermon text today is Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. There are some new faces here. There are some people who I have not seen in a while who have moved away and are visiting. Um, And this might be a difficult sermon for you to jump back into. Uh, We've been in the book of Revelation for some time now. I hope that you're able to uh, follow all that is said. But this sermon definitely builds upon uh, those things that have been said in previous sermons. I trust that will be clear to you. Perhaps you'd be interested to go back and to listen to the rest of the sermon series online sometime. Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. Ezekiel chapter 40 verses 1 through 6. Remember Ezekiel ministered in the old covenant before the coming of Christ. And he ministered in particular to... Uh, the, the nation of Israel as they were in exile. They were taken away from their land and were in captivity. And in the 25th year of our exile, the prophet says, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me to the city. In visions of God he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain. He has, he has seen a vision here, obviously. On which was a structure like a city to the south When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area. And the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. About ten feet long was the rod. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. And he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. That is Ezekiel 40, verses 1 through 6. If we were to continue to read the rest of chapter 40 and even chapter 41, we would see that the measuring of this temple continues. Um, It's very detailed. The temple is measured by Ezekiel here, um, and very exact measurements are given of this structure. When we come to chapter 43, and we look at verse 1, We read, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name Neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies in their kings of their kings at their high places by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple 
that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Did you put yourself there in the place of exiled Israel? They were far away from their land. Their temple had been destroyed. They were 25 years into their captivity. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel the prophet is shown this vision. And the temple is measured. And the priests and the sacrifices are described. And they are pure, most pure most holy. What message would this have sent to the people of Israel except this? I am not done with you, but I will fulfill my promises to you. Though things look utterly bleak and as if there is no hope, I will fulfill all my purposes and bring them to a completion. Now let's come to Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, which is the sermon text for today. John, the apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, Says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So far the reading of God's holy word. We do pray that the Lord was, would help us to understand it. And to apply it to our lives. Here's what I believe the proper interpretation of this passage to be. You're going to want to pay attention right now. Uh, because here is where I explain what Revelation 11, 1 through 2 means in a most direct way. The vision shown to John, of which he becomes a participant as he is given a measuring rod. And is told to rise and measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. Uh, symbolizes God's presence with and protection of his people as they worship and serve him in the midst of a troubled world. John being told not to measure the court outside the temple, but to leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, symbolizes the fact that God's people will suffer trials and tribulations in this world in the time between Christ's first and second coming. In other words, the temple, its court, and the holy city symbolize the church. The measuring of the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there signifies God's presence, protection, and preservation of the church. The leaving out of the court and the holy city to be trampled by the nation signifies the church's vulnerability in regards to suffering. The church is therefore both secure and vulnerable in this world. You've probably noticed, brothers and sisters, that this theme pervades the book of Revelation. Not long ago, in between the sixth and seventh seals that were broken, there was an interlude much like the one we are now in, in between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And the same thing was emphasized there. 144,000 were sealed being preserved and protected by God in the midst of a hostile world. Here, the same general truth is being communicated concerning the church, 
concerning Jews and Gentiles who worship Christ. They are both preserved and protected, the presence of God being with them, but they are also vulnerable. The nations have the ability to trample upon them in this world, though God is with them and will bring them safely to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. I'm well aware of the fact that this is not the interpretation that most of you grew up with. Instead, most of us were told that this vision will be fulfilled in the future during the last three and a half years of a seven-year tribulation. Am I right? That that is what most of us grew up being taught. In that time, we were told the ethnic Jews, having been regathered in Jerusalem and their temple having been rebuilt, the temple is taken to be a literal description of a brick-and-mortar temple belonging to the Jews. In that time, they will suffer tribulation at the hands of the Gentiles, but will be protected and preserved by God. Uh, there are certainly variations within this, what I have come to call hyper-literalistic, futuristic, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial dispensational scheme. <laughs> but what I have just said gets at the heart of the view Uh, They imagine the text to be only about events in our future. They take the temple to be literal brick and mortar, and they claim that this has nothing to do with Christians, but instead with ethnic Israel. That's the view. To put things in a more pejorative way, when reading Revelation 11, 1 through 2, the hyper-literalistic, futuristic, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, dispensational, so I won't do that again in the sermon, uh, we're we're, we're surrounded by them, uh, thinks this text had nothing at all to do with the Christians who received the letter from John in the first century. It had nothing at all to do with the Christians who have lived since that time. It has nothing to do with us today, and it will certainly have nothing to do with us, because according to their view, all Christians will be raptured out of the world before this tribulation begins. This interpretation is clearly wrong for a number of reasons, which I will list briefly. I'm going to state things negatively here at the beginning of the sermon, and I think in stating them negatively, it will help us to understand the the, the positive and true meaning of this text. This interpretation is clearly wrong for a number of reasons. One, it ignores the repeated emphasis in the book of Revelation concerning the fulfillment of these prophecies being near in time to those who received the book originally in 90 AD. There are clearly references in the book to the time of the end, which is yet in our future, which any reader should be able to recognize that event, which is the second coming of Christ, the resurrection, the final judgment, and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth are clearly in our future. But Everything else in the book has to do not with that last day, but with life as we know it now. The book begins and ends with the warning, for the time is near. Revelation 1.3 and 22.10. The time is near. Those are bookends to the book of Revelation. This emphasis, the time is near. And those words are there in order to keep us from making the error that the futurists have made. This view is also incorrect in that it ignores the fact that this book had to do with the lives of those who first received it. They were said to be blessed if they kept what was written in it. Uh, this too is said at the beginning and end of the book, end of the book in Revelation 1, 3 and 22, 7. You're going to be blessed if you keep what is written in the book, what is implied here. This whole thing is for you. It applies to your life. Those of you living in the first century A.D., the fifth century A.D., and even to this present day in 2017. It is for you, and, and, and what, what is written in it must be applied by you. Um, These things are said in order to keep the reader also from making the error that the futurists have made, who imagine that these prophecies will only have to do with a very limited number of people living in the last three and a half years of human history. The dispensational view is also incorrect, thirdly, 
because it cannot give a reason for thinking that this passage has to do with only the time of the end. The burden of proof is on them. Where is the gap of time? I've asked it before, and I'll continue to ask the question as we progress through this study. Uh, why, uh, why, why does the futurist say this will happen a long, long time from now at the very end of human history? Uh, the truth of the matter is that they impose their unbiblical system upon this text, and it cannot hold the weight. Fourthly, and this is more to the heart of what we will focus on today, the dispensational view is incorrect because it is clearly out of step with the established meaning of the book of Revelation. The book has to do with how things will go with the people of God in the time between Christ's first and second comings. First, John was shown visions concerning how things were in his day. Do you remember the letters to the seven churches? Those were visions concerning how things were in his day. The state of the church was addressed. The church was exhorted. And of course, we apply those principles to ourselves even today. But after that, he was show, shown visions concerning how things would be from that day forward. Chapter 4, verse 1 is very significant because it marks the turning point from visions concerning how things were in his day to how things would be from that day forward. The visions that followed, with the exception of the ones that clearly depict what will happen on the last day, symbolize in general how things will be in this world for Christ's followers. This has been demonstrated time and time again in this sermon series. The point is that any Christian living at any time and at any place is able to pick up the book of Revelation and say, I see what is depicted here in the pages of this holy book at work in the world today. Anyone could, no matter where you live or no matter what time uh, you live, you are able to pick up the book of Revelation and say, I, I, I see these powers and these forces and these factors at work in the world uh, today. We see that there are indeed wars and rumors of wars, famines, trials, and tribulations. We see that the evil one is at work in this world, but God, by his mercy, restrains him. We see also that God is faithful to keep those who belong to him. We see all of these things present in the world today. The hyper-literalistic dispensationalists who believe all of these things are about the future, are not wrong to think that the prophecies of the book will be fulfilled in world events, but they are wrong to assume that these prophecies will be fulfilled in one event only, and only in our future. That is where they err. Their interpretation of chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, as a description of a literal temple to be re rebuilt in our future, at which ethnic Jews will worship, is yet another example of this error. It's out of step with the meaning of the book of Revelation, which is clearly organized, not chronologically, but involves repetition or recapitulation. Why am I right here reiterating all these things yet again? It's because I think... Uh, Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 through 2 provides for us one of the clearest examples of texts of a text where we differ so much from the dispensationalists. We look at it and we say it's the church today. It's the church from the first century onward. They say literal rebuilt temple belonging to ethnic Jews. We could not be more different in our interpretation of this passage. Five, the dispensational view is incorrect because it badly contradicts the clear teaching of the New Testament. It is incorrect because it badly contradicts the clear teaching of the New Testament. We'll return to this point in a little bit, but for now, please pay attention here, brothers and sisters. For now, recognize that the New Testament makes it clear from beginning to end that the Old Covenant 
with its old forms of worship centered at the temple, had passed away with the first coming of Christ and the establishment of the new covenant. That is clearly taught in the pages of the New Testament. Consider these things. In the new covenant, we know from the pages of the New Testament that there is no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down, Ephesians 2 says. We also know that the true children of Abraham are those born not according to the flesh, has nothing to do with heritage or genealogy anymore, but the true children of Abraham are those who have been born by the Spirit. They are those who have faith in Christ. They have the faith of Abraham. Read John 1, John 8, Romans 9. These are to worship not on this mountain or that, but in spirit and in truth. Read Jesus' words in John 4. Christ himself declared himself to be the physical uh, de- excuse me, Christ himself declared the physical temple in Jerusalem, the one destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, to be desolate. Matthew 23, verse 38. He walked away from it and said, it is desolate. Christ himself claimed to be the temple. Remember that he tabernacled amongst us in his incarnation, John 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If we were to notice the Greek there, the Word actually is, he, he tabernacled amongst us. It should bring our minds back to the Old Covenant and the, the formation of the tabernacle and later the temple under Moses and then later under David and Solomon. Christ himself claimed to be the temple. He tabernacled amongst us in his incarnation. And he said these words, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. What was he referring to, brothers and sisters? He was referring not to the literal and physical temple, but to, the, to his body and to the resurrection. And notice that it is the church that is referred to as the temple of God throughout the New Testament. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth saying, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6.16 And he says to the individual Christian, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What makes something the temple of the living God except this? The presence of God's spirit. And what does Paul consistently do in his writings but say, we are the temple. You are the temple. God is with us. He is present with us. His spirit has been poured out upon us. And listen to what Peter wrote. It's not just Paul, but he wrote to Christians, not to ethnic Jews, but to Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike, saying, as you come to him, Jesus, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, precious and chosen. Is he a literal stone? No, he is a, a living stone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, First Peter 2, 4 through 5. So Peter is also clear on this point. Where is the temple today? Peter might be asked. He would, say, he would say, it is here. It is present in the church. Not physical bricks and, and not put together by mortar. But it is the people of God who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit ever since the day of Pentecost. That is where the temple is, Peter would say. In fact, the old covenant temple existed to point forward to this reality. 
Ironically, the dispensationalist, though obsessed with the thought of a future rebuilt brick-and-mortar Jewish temple, seems to miss entirely what the New Testament clearly teaches about the temple, that it is no longer physical and earthly, but spiritual and heavenly. The book of Hebrews, which should make any thought of a literal rebuilt temple and a reinstitution of old covenant animal sacrifices unthinkable to Christians. It ought to. Uh, Why? Why should this be unthinkable to us? For the Christ has come, who was the fulfillment of those old covenant types and shadows. The dispensational scheme is so terribly out of step with the entire New Testament. Their scheme, when put to the test, essentially misses the significance of of Christ's first coming. That is why I rail against it so much, by the way. It is all around us, and it really guts the New Testament of its significance. It misses the significance of Christ's first coming in such a bad way. The dispensational view, number six, of Revelation 11, 1 through 2, is also incorrect because it contradicts the clear teaching of the Old Testament too. It is true that the Old Testament prophets spoke often of a restored Israel and a rebuilt temple. The Ezekiel 40 passage that I read is the preeminent example of of a passage like that. But the Old Testament prophets did so in such a way to make it clear that what was in view was far more glorious, far more universal, and far more pure than anything known under the Old Covenant. In other words, the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament prophets used the language of, of temple and the language of ethnic Israel. They used the language, but used the language in such a way to say that the days are going to come where God is going to do something that makes all of this that we now know pale in comparison. That is how they spoke. The New Testament, when we come to the pages of the New Testament, makes it exceedingly and undeniably clear that the original intent of the Old Testament prophets was to point forward first to the arrival of Jesus the Christ and through him to the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth at the consummation. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus the Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20. They all find their yes in Him. They all find their fulfillment in Him. And did not Jesus teach His disciples whom He met on the road to Emmaus, saying, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter in to His glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Dispensationalism not only misinterprets the New Testament, but also misses the point of the Old, which was to point forward to Jesus, who is the Christ. So, brothers and sisters, the Old and New Testament scriptures are centered upon Christ, His person and work. The Old Testament pointed forward to Him through promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. The New Testament looks back to Him, telling of His person and work, applying all that He has accomplished to our lives under the New Covenant. The Old and New Testament are about Christ's redeeming work. They describe how it is that God has taken sinful, rebellious, alienated, judgment-deserving humanity and has rescued out of it a particular people for His own possession, a people amongst whom He dwells. This is a people amongst whom 
he dwells. It is a people of whom he can say, I am their God and they are my people. This phrase is repeated throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets as they look forward to the coming of the Christ and the establishment of the new covenant. The phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people is so significant put the phrase a little differently God promised that in the days of the new covenant all the covenant members would belong to him and he to them the phrase I will be their God and they will be my people or something close to it appears all over the Old Testament in Jeremiah 24 7 31 33 32 38 also Ezekiel 11 20 37 23 37 27 also Zechariah 8 8 um, The prophets clearly pointed forward to a day when all the people of the covenant would truly be God's and God would be theirs. And this is the phrase that the Apostle Paul picks up on and uses in 2 Corinthians 6.16 when he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What, What kind of language is he using? Old covenant language, temple language. Can you imagine that old covenant temple being filled with idols? It would be an abomination, wouldn't it? An absolute abomination. But look where Paul goes with this. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. What is the point he is making to the church? Flee from idolatry. Flee from sin. For you to engage in idolatry and for you to engage in sin is to to corrupt God's temple. That is, you and I under the Old Covenant, being filled with the Holy Spirit. As God said, and then he begins to make reference to a couple of Old Testament texts, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul picked up the phrase, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and applied it not to ethnic Israel, which would run contrary to the rest of the New Testament, but to the church, to all who have faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. He calls the church, those who have faith in Christ, the temple of God, because they belong to him and he to them, for he has redeemed them with Christ's blood, and he dwells in them and with them. That is why he uses this language. Paul also alluded to another Old Testament passage in that 2 Corinthians text that I have just read. He says there, For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them. This is a reference to Exodus 29, 43 through 45. Tune in here, brothers and sisters. Exodus 29, 43 through 45. There, the context, context is all about the tabernacle, which would later become the temple and the sacrifices that were to be offered there under the Old Covenant. That is what is being talked about in Exodus 29, 43 through 45. And God said there in that text, that there at that tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And here is what is said. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. Exodus 29, 43 through 45. And what does Paul do? But he takes that exact language and he applies it not to a physical temple, to a brick and mortar temple, but says the days have come now where the temple is is you, those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the spirit of glory. You are his, he belongs to you, and he walks in your midst. 
Are, are you understanding the progression, brothers and sisters? We're going to spend two Sundays in uh, Revelation 11, 1 through 2. This is part one of a two-part series. But I felt overwhelmed with the text when I came to it because I thought, my goodness, what I have to demonstrate to the people of Emmaus is that temple, the, 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 the concept of temple runs throughout the pages of the, the, of, of the scriptures from Old Testament to New, from Genesis 1 on to the very beginning. The temple is all over the place. But what is the significance of the temple? It's not about the temple as in the structure, but it's about this idea, God dwelling with his people, the spirit of glory present with his people. And so we see there is progression we see that there is progression. The temple was the place where God dwelt in the midst of his people and was to be worshipped and served. Under the old covenant, the temple was earthly and physical and was given to the Jews. Under the new covenant, the temple, that is the place where God dwells with man and is to be worshipped and served, is not earthly and physical, but heavenly, personal, spiritual. We are the temple of the living God, Paul said. To the Roman church, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what kinds of sacrifices? Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Everything in the New Testament points this reality. The earthly, physical stuff of the Old Covenant is gone. Why? Because the Spirit of glory is here. This is what all of those realities were pointing forward to. Was it good and right that the people worshipped in that way under the Old Covenant? Yes. But there were some who did not believe. Others did. They looked forward to the coming of Christ. But in this New Covenant, all belonged to God. And therefore, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is the thing that I'm laboring to help you see. That the tabernacle and later the temple as it was under the Old Covenant symbolized God's presence with His people. Everything in the New Testament and even in the Old makes it clear that the temple along with the priesthood and the sacrifices which were offered there were temporary and typological. They pointed forward to a greater reality to be ushered in by a greater priest who would make a greater sacrifice. Who is that, brothers and sisters? Christ Jesus our Lord. When the fullness of time had come, God the Son tabernacled amongst us in the incarnation through the person of Jesus Christ. The temple of his body was indeed destroyed as he offered himself up for his people, but was raised on the third day. Don't you remember that the veil in the earthly temple was torn in two? He then ascended to the Father, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. Are you listening to this from Hebrews 9? Christ ascended to the Father, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Hebrews 9, 23 through 24. And Jesus the Christ, who is our great high priest, did not leave us orphans, but sent the Holy Spirit. The Spirit which filled the old covenant temple with the glory cloud now fills the church. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think it is very interesting that every time the word temple, naos in the Greek, every time that Greek word is used in Paul's writings, it is used in reference to Christians or to the church and never to the physical and Jewish temple. Not once. I want you just to listen to Paul as he wrote to the Ephesian church. Listen carefully to this passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. He says to them, Christians, most of them, if not all of them, Gentiles and not Jewish Christians. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles 
in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, called the uncircumcision by the Jewish people, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of providence. You used to be alienated from God's covenant people in the days of the old covenant, having no hope and without God in the world. Did God say to them, I will be their God and they will be my people. Not in reference to the Gentiles under the Old Covenant. They were alienated from God without hope in the world. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What is he talking about here? He's saying there's no more Jew and Gentile. One man has been made out of the two. You both have access to God. Now both of you are called the people of God. Through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. So then you are no longer, excuse me, let me back up a little bit here. And he came and preached peace to you who were once far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually and corporately together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now that the new covenant, the covenant of new creation, has come. Adam was a priest in the Garden of Eden. He was to tend that temple where he enjoyed unbroken communion with the living God. A kingdom was offered to Adam there in the Garden Paradise. He belonged to God and God belonged to him, but he forfeited it, didn't he? Therefore, God promised Adam that he would reestablish his kingship through the seed of the woman. That process began to take shape with the calling of Abraham. The promises of God concerning uh, the redemption of a people were reiterated to him from Abraham's loins, his descendants. A savior would come who would bless all the nations of the earth. Genesis 12. Also from Abraham's loins, a peculiar nation would come who would belong to God uniquely for a time. That nation was born in the days of Moses as they were led out of bondage from Egypt toward the promised land. The Spirit of God was with them from the beginning, guiding them at night by a pillar of fire and in the day by a pillar of cloud. The glory cloud of the Spirit would eventually come to rest upon the tabernacle and later the temple. Are you, are you remembering all of these themes? Are, are, you, are you picturing it as you um, remember the, the story of redemption told to us in the pages of the Holy Scriptures? Eventually, the Spirit would come to fill the most holy place. It was there under Moses that the kingdom of God was prefigured. Everything in it pointed forward to the Christ. But when Jesus was conceived, it was by what? The power of the Holy Spirit. When he began his ministry, he was baptized by the 
Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. His message, as well as John's, was that the kingdom of God was at hand. Christ was filled by the Spirit from the beginning so that everything he said and did was of the Spirit. When he was raised from the dead, it was by the Spirit. Truly, he was the Messiah, which means the anointed one of God. He was anointed by the Spirit. And when he ascended to the Father, what did he do except give the Spirit? To those who belong to him, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John 3.34. He prepared his disciples for his departure, saying, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, for it was then that the Spirit was poured out on high upon the disciples from on high. Upon the disciples of Christ for the first time. It was then that the Spirit filled the new covenant temple of God. The kingdom has been offered, brothers and sisters, to Adam. It was promised to Adam and to all who came after him in the days of the old covenant. It was prefigured in those old covenant types and shadows in the days of Moses and the days of David. And it has been inaugurated. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when the kingdom is consummated, everything will be temple. That's what I want you to see. When the kingdom is consummated, when Christ returns and the new heavens and the new earth usher in, the thing that will make that place most wonderful, most distinct, most glorious is that it will all be holy of holies. No more will anything defile that place, but it will all be holy of holies. Satan will be judged and condemned to the lake of fire. Sin and death will be defeated most thoroughly. It will all be temple. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. It's there that we will see a depiction of the consummation. Look at verse 1, Revelation 21, 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem coming down from where? Out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, here's that phrase again, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's where we're headed, brothers and sisters, is to that Experience where God is with us in an immediate way and where all who are there in that realm belong to Him and He to them. Look at verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. Did you remember the Ezekiel text I read to you at the beginning? carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east gates, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. Now this rod is gold all of a sudden. But it was the same thing mentioned in Ezekiel 40, also 
in Revelation 11. Now here it is again. A measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates. The city lies four square its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement, Revelation 21, 7, 9 through 17. Look at 21, 22 really quickly here. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. That's a glorious thought, isn't it? I'm imagining what that would look like. And the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. Listen to this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is in the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you you get the point? See the progression of temple from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 21. It has all to do with God dwelling in the midst of His people, His presence being there, and there is progression to it. Offered to Adam but forfeited, and ever since then, progression, where God is redeeming a people for Himself out of this world, a people who belong to Him and He to them, of whom he could say, I will be their God and they will be my people. The Ezekiel passage that I read portions from at the beginning of the sermon finds its ultimate fulfillment here in Revelation 21, not in a physical and earthly temple, but in the new heavens and the new earth. The prophet Ezekiel spoke to a people who had been in exile for some time, their temple having been destroyed. And God showed Ezekiel a vision of a temple on a high mountain and told him to measure it. He also described the purity of its priests and worship. The promise to the exiles was found in these words from God, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and place of the soles of my feet where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places. That's the promise. That's the promise made to the people of Israel in the days of Ezekiel. I will dwell in the midst of my people forever, he says. In other words, I'm not done with you, Israel. Though you have been disciplined through exile, I will keep my promises to you. I will bring about the redemption of my people and the promise of a new heavens and new earth. It is important, I think, to notice the very last words of Ezekiel's prophecy in his book. The very last words, Ezekiel 48, 35. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Listen to that. What's the emphasis? Is is it about bricks? Is it about mortar? Is it about curtains? Is it about physical things? No, the Lord is there. That's the point. It always has been. And we see that in this new covenant age, the kingdom having come upon us, the spirit having been poured out, the Lord is here amongst his people. I hope that you can see the progression. I hope that you can see the progression. If this is all true, brothers and sisters, then why would Christians celebrate at the thought of a rebuilt brick and mortar temple where animal sacrifices are performed again as they were under the days of the Old Covenant? Why would we celebrate something like that? Yet so many evangelicals in our land today 
are rooting for that very thing. Would that act not be an act of rebellion against God and his Christ? Would that act not be an act whereby the people building that temple are saying, the Christ has not come. The New Testament is not true. Why would we root for that sort of thing? I have a theory that it it might happen someday. And if and when it does happen, Christians are going to be very divided over this question. Is it good or is it bad? I'm not talking politically here. This isn't about politics. This is about theology. This is about God's word. How should we view that sort of endeavor now that the Christ has come, who the book of Hebrews makes clear is the fulfillment to all of those types and shadows under the old covenant? In light of all that the New Testament has to say about Christ, the temple, and the church, why would we celebrate or encourage such a thing? It would be a most blatant denial that the Messiah, that, that, that the Messiah has come. Um, it is far better to understand that the temple and the court that are measured and, and mentioned in Revelation 11, 1 through 2, symbolize the church. When John measures the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, it symbolizes this truth. God is with his people now as they worship and serve him on earth. He is present with them. He protects and preserves his people spiritually as they live on earth. That is what the measuring signifies. These people are set off unto me. They belong to me. Just like the sealing of the 144,000. These are mine. They are sealed and will be kept That is the message being communicated here. And John being told not to measure the court outside the temple, but to leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city 42 months, symbolizes the fact that God's people will suffer trials and tribulations in this world. Symbolized here, then, is the church of God prior to the consummation of all things. Symbolized here is the church of God living in the age between Christ's first and second comings. This age is marked by tribulation. At the consummation, all will be temple, as described in Revelation 21. No longer will the nations trample God's people underfoot, but they will come and give honor to God. Until that day, the church will suffer tribulation. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The words of Christ himself, John 16, 33. This interpretation, brothers and sisters, as I move to bring this to a conclusion, is perfectly in step with the way that the Old Testament talks about the temple, both the earthly Mosaic temple and the future eschatological temple of Ezekiel 40 through 48. This interpretation is perfectly in step with the way that Jesus spoke about the temple. He claimed to be the true temple, declared the earthly one to be desolate, and promised to send his spirit to fill not the physical temple but his people. This interpretation is perfectly in step with the way that the apostles of Christ, particularly Peter and Paul, who have been quoted here, spoke of the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul said. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, Peter said. And this is is perfectly in step with the way that the book of Revelation speaks about the temple. The book uses temple imagery and applies it to the church from the very beginning. Do you remember the very opening vision? Christ was seen walking in the midst of what? Seven golden lampstands. Where does that image come from? Is that not the lampstand that is in that was in the temple at Jerusalem, that 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 menorah 
And Christ is walking in the midst of those lampstands. And those seven golden lampstands become what in the book of Revelation? Seven churches to whom the book was written. So from the very beginning, temple language is used and applied to the church. The church in Philadelphia, to them, Christ said, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. Do you get it, brothers and sisters? Uh, As Christians, we belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to us. We belong to God, and God belongs to us. He is our God. And we are his people. So brothers and sisters, by way of conclusion, if you are in Christ, you are God's temple. His spirit is in you. His spirit is in us. It is we who are to offer up to God spiritual sacrifices as we live in this world. But we are still in the world, are we not? In this world and in this world, we will have tribulation. But God is with us. He is our God. We are his people. Just as he sojourned with Israel in the wilderness those 40 years, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, So too he is with us. We have all that we need in Christ Jesus. He is our sanctuary. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. He gives us spiritual manna to eat and spiritual water to drink as we sojourn in this world. He will protect and preserve us until we take full possession of the new heavens and the new earth. Of which it is said, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. My prayer is that you would take comfort in these things, brothers and sisters, and that you would walk faithfully in Christ in this world until he returns. Let us pray. Father, would you give us help, more grace, to apply these ideas, these principles, these truths to our own lives. I taught today, Lord, and I have not taken much time to apply the text specifically and and particularly to the situations we find ourselves in. But Lord, would you help us with that by your spirit? I pray for those who, who are suffering tribulation in this world. Indeed, we all do from time to time to one degree or another. But I pray for those who right now are suffering tribulation in this world. That they would hear the truth of your word. That they would see the imagery of Revelation 11, 1 through 2 and be comforted by it. Lord, may they be comforted by your presence and your promise to protect them. And would they therefore walk boldly before you in full obedience to your commandments. I pray that, Lord, we all would be busy in this world seeking to bring glory to your name. Offering ourselves up as spiritual sacrifices to you. These things we say in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. Amen.